Now let's turn to our scripture, which is Luke twenty-two fourteen through 23. Uh, we are uh, in the midst of Easter season. Um, Easter is coming up uh, April 4th. So next uh, Sunday is going to be Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday. And so this is a great opportunity to invite someone to church. If someone is not a churchgoer, the two times they're, they're going to come, if they're going to come at all, it's going to be Easter and Christmas. And often people are just waiting uh, for an invite. So I encourage you to invite someone. But we're looking, as we look at this Easter season, this, this sermon is regarding the Last Supper. So I'm going to read from that, Luke 22, 14 through 23. And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed." And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. The word of the Lord. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do? How would you spend the last 24 hours of your life? It's a good question. We should often think like that, shouldn't we? Because no one knows how long their life is. Life is fleeting. Well, this question faces Jesus Christ. Jesus knows that he is going to the cross. He knows that he is going to be betrayed by his disciples. And so what does Jesus do? He spends time with the ones that he loved. He sits down to dinner with the disciples. Jesus is going to die. He knows this. But Jesus is dying on purpose. Indeed, it has been foretold from the beginning of his life that this would be the day that he would pass. Jesus has known it, and his whole life has been building up to this point. And so Jesus wants to communicate to his disciples in this last show of love and truth. And he wants to communicate to us as well who he is, why he is going to die. See, Jesus is not only going to die, but Jesus is going to live again. For three days later, he is going to rise from the grave. And so Jesus is not only commemorating his death on the cross, but he is inaugurating a new covenant with his people that is stronger than death, that will result not in separation between Jesus and his people, but rather God being with his people forever. And so this picture, this microcosm of Jesus' intentions and Jesus' life is in the Last Supper. And in the Last Supper, we see three particular things. Number one, we get to see Jesus' heart. Who really is he? What is in his heart for his people? Number two, we get to see Jesus' plan. 
What does Jesus intend to do as he inaugurates this new covenant with, pe- with his people? Finally, number three, we get to make a choice. We get the opportunity to embrace Jesus' destiny that Jesus has for us. See, because Christ has inaugurated a new covenant with us in his blood, we need not fear the wrath of God. Rather, we can look forward to a future with God. Well, let's dig into some of these points. Number one, we get to see Jesus' heart in the Last Supper. It says in the beginning, when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. The apostles, the disciples, they have made preparations for Passover. And we see that the hour has come. In the book of Luke, it's been talked about again and again. Jesus has been talking about the hour. The hour is referencing his death. Jesus is on death's door. And Jesus says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now that's very interesting. Jesus says, I've earnestly desired. If you look at the Greek, it actually says, I have desired with much desire. There's an intense desire that Jesus has to share this Passover meal with his disciples. And we ask the question, why? What is so significant about this Passover meal? This Passover has a special significance. Jesus is about to begin something, something great. But what does the Passover represent? Why would Jesus take this particular point in history to inaugurate a new covenant? Well, Passover represents God liberating the Israelites. You remember the story? The Israelites were in slavery for hundreds of years, and God spoke to Moses and said, I'm going to bring these people out with an outstretched arm, and I'm going to bring them to myself. I'm going to create a new nation. And so Moses goes and he speaks to Pharaoh and a series of plagues ensues. Finally, with the final plague that God is going to send a destroying angel that is going to come into the land of Pharaoh and is going to kill the firstborn of every single Egyptian family. However, he's not going to kill the firstborn of every Israelite family. Rather, he is going to pass over their house because they are going to put the blood of the lamb on the door. And when the destroying angel comes and sees the blood on the door, he will pass over. Jesus has chosen this particular time to inaugurate this new covenant because the same thing is about to happen. Jesus has come to save his people from bondage, not to the Egyptians, but rather from bondage to sin and Satan. He's come to liberate them from their old behaviors and the captivity, the condemnation that stands on every single man and woman's shoulders. He's come to liberate them by suffering in their place. Notice what he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. In the Passover, during the time of the Egyptians, it was the lamb that was slaughtered and the blood was smeared on the door. Instead, tomorrow, the day after this Passover meal, it's Jesus, not the lamb, who will take the wrath of God. It's Jesus' blood who will be over the door of his people, of his disciples, and of his Christians, and the wrath will pass by, pass over his people, and they will go free. 
Jesus is creating the ultimate safe space, if you will. A place free of the condemnation of God, that God's destroying angel will pass over the people of God. And so he earnestly desires to inaugurate this new covenant, even though it will cost him his life. But there's a second reason why he earnestly desires to eat this Passover with his disciples, with his friends. Notice he says, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. He has an intense, personal love with the disciples. See, this is the last meal that he's going to eat. And he wants to be with his loved ones before he suffers. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully man. He experiences the same emotions that we experience. He knows what is coming, and he derives comfort from being with these that he has chosen to call his friends. Yes, he knew that Peter was going to betray him. Not betray him, but deny him. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that the disciples were going to run. And yet at the same point, he derived great comfort and consolation from being with these people so that he would not be alone. The scripture says, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Before that Passover meal, he would take each one of the disciples' feet and he would wash them lovingly with his hands and with a towel. He wants to enjoy their presence, to smile, to laugh, to be together. Jesus said to them, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Indeed, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus said, I want to eat this meal with you, for I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus knows the next time I will have a meal of this significance with you, it will be in heaven. And so I want to make it last. Do you not find it astounding that the Son of God would call ordinary mortal human men and, uh, and women his friends? I mean, this is the Son of God. This is the Word of God, the one who spread the stars into the sky, who maintains the entire universe by his powerful Word. And yet he wants to be with human beings like you and me. Jesus shows us that the most important thing to him is his relationship with us. Jesus went so far that he died for us so that we could know him. So that we could take great joy as he does in a relationship with him. Notice he calls them apostles. Normally he calls them disciples. Why does he choose, why does Luke uh, choose to call them apostles? Because they are the sent ones. That's what apostle means. It means sent one. See, he's doing this because this message that Jesus has, this affection that he has for the 12, he also has for every single person who will hear their message, who will believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ. That God, the great God, the Son of God, 
would love and want to be with his disciples astounds me. Now, I have a confession to make. I am uh, great friends with Taylor Swift. (laughs) It's true. I don't know if you knew that or not, but Taylor and I, we're buds, okay? Lee Ellen will tell you, Taylor comes over uh, to my house. She's running a song idea by, and so she asked me to pull out my guitar or my cajon, and we'll play, you know, and we'll talk, and we'll kind of hang out, and, you know, she'll share how things are going with her personal life. Taylor and I, we're nice and close, right? Okay, the reality is that is a bald-faced lie. (laughs) Taylor has no idea who I am, and much less doesn't care. Taylor is very, very famous. Taylor could be friends with whoever she wanted. In fact, there's a million screaming fans who would love nothing more than to be with Taylor Swift. But Taylor's just a human, isn't she? She's just, when you peel it all away, an ordinary person with flaws and foibles. Yet we would swoon over the opportunity to be friends with Taylor Swift. This sermon shows us that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wants to be friends with us, wants to come to our house and to eat a meal with us and to share in joys and in sorrows. Why do you follow Jesus Christ? Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you're a seeker. You're just coming today because you want to hear more about who this person is and we welcome you and we're glad that you would get a chance to take an honest look at the person of Jesus Christ. Well, maybe you follow Jesus Christ because he saves me from my sins. And he does. He has that kind of power. But I think the true reason why one should follow Jesus Christ is that he loves me. What he is doing for these disciples and what he's doing, what he did for us, is because he loves us. Because he wants to be with us. He wants to know us. I can say with 100% certainty that there is no one who will ever love you like Jesus Christ loves you. So see Jesus' heart. See his love. See his compassion. See his care in the Last Supper because he's exhibiting it not only for the disciples but for you and me as well. This brings me to my second point. In the Last Supper, we get to see Jesus' plan. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is inaugurating a new covenant that's signed and sealed in Jesus' blood. So what is this new covenant that he's inaugurating? We first have to ask the question, answer the question, what is a covenant? A covenant is a God-initiated, binding, living relationship with blessings and obligations. It's how God is choosing to relate to people. It's a definition of the relationship. But it's more than that. 
It's not only a binding living relationship with blessings and obligations, it's also the way or means by which this relationship is secured. All we have to do is look at the, uh, one of the most famous covenants in order to understand this, the Mosaic Covenant. Remember in the Mosaic Covenant, the Israelites are suffering in slavery and God comes to Moses and says that the Israelites will be my people and I will be their God. And I will dwell with them in a place where I will put my name. And I will take them to a promised land and I will be with them. And then he gave them the Ten Commandments, the, the uh, instructions on how to live life with God. And along with this covenant, the special definition of the relationship that they are going to have, God with his people, are blessings and curses. And we all know the story that God was faithful to his people, the Israelites, but the Israelites were not. And the result of that was curses placed on them, that they were expelled from the land. They were expelled from the presence of God. They lost his presence and they lost his favor. But 600 years before Jesus Christ, the prophet Jeremiah, in the midst of the expulsion of the Israelites, said that there will be a new covenant in the future that will be created by God. Jeremiah put it this way, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declared the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. God promised that a new covenant would be created, and that's what Jesus is doing on this very night of the Last Supper. But this new covenant is greater. It's different than the old covenant. And it's different in five different ways. Number one, it's unbreakable. Notice verse 32. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers, that they broke when I was their husband, though I was their husband, says the Lord. This covenant cannot be broken between God and his people, even because of unfaithfulness. Number two, it's an individual covenant. It's not with a nation in a specific geography, but it's with an individual based on the human heart that I will write their laws and I will put my spirit within them that the temple where God will dwell will not be a place geographically but rather in the human heart. It's individual. Number three, it's transformational. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts by the Holy Spirit. See, the way God gave his law to his people in the Mosaic Covenant was through 10 commandments of stone. But they couldn't change the human heart. But this new covenant, in this new covenant, 
the law will actually be written on the hearts of his people, that he will change them from the inside out, not trying to change them from the outside in. It's unbreakable, it's individual, it's transformational, and it's relational. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It's based not on law, but on grace. It's unilateral. It's God saying, This is what I will do, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So what is this new covenant that Jesus is inaugurating that night in the Last Supper? It is the unilateral, irrevocable, unchangeable, eternal promise by God that he will save sinners by forgiving their transgressions and regenerating them from the inside to love him and obey him. The new covenant embodies grace and peace and the Holy Spirit and regeneration and the knowledge of God and the forgiveness of sin and a new heart and pure fellowship with God and love for God. It's a personal and individual covenant. And notice how this covenant is put into effect. It's a new covenant in my blood. Jesus brings it to life. He signs it. He ratifies it through his shed blood on the cross. Why was this blood of Jesus Christ necessary? The same reason that it was necessary on the door of the Israelites for the Egyptians. See, the truth of the matter, my friends, were the Israelites were just as bad as the Egyptians. They did not merit the favor and blessing of God, but God gave it to them. But you see, God may forgive sinners, but he never forgives sin. Someone always has to pay, right? Back in the Egyptian times, and the Israelite times, it was the Passover lamb that paid for the sins of that Israelite family by being sacrificed in their place. Hebrews 9.22 puts it this way. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. See, what right do you and I have to merit the blessings of God? What right do we have to be called sons and daughters? What right do we have to have everything wrong that we've ever done taken away from our record and to be declared righteousness? No, it's Christ, our Passover lamb, who was sacrificed. Jesus paid for your sin and mine on that cross that we might receive the blessings of the new covenant. I don't know if you've gone to a car dealership recently to buy a car. It's amazing how exorbitantly expensive cars are now, right? So let's say you go to a car dealership and you want to buy a car, and there's a particular one you pick out, and it costs $30,000. Now, it's a gorgeous car. It's beautiful. It's got the leather interior. It's got all the bells and whistles. And in order to take possession of that car, in order to receive all the blessings and benefits of that car, 
you must pay the amount. If you don't have it, you don't take possession of it. See, that's the price of the blessing and benefit you are to receive from the car. Okay, that's a simple analogy of what is happening here. To receive the blessing and benefit of God's favor, the cost is simple. It's just a sinless life. The problem is none of us have the $30,000. None of us can pay, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But as Hebrews 13, 12 puts it, and so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant. So do you see it? Do you know that you don't merit the favor and blessing of God on your own? That each one of us, me included, have our clothes stained with sin and we need someone to wash them white. But the gospel says that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That God would go through such lengths proves that we need a sacrifice on our behalf. So where's yours? You may say, I don't need one. I say, you're going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for your life. And left to yourself, you will not have what it takes to be declared righteous by God, which is the standard for which he created you and me. You can say, I can choose any sacrifice. I can go ahead and turn uh, over a new leaf. I can start living a better life. I can start doing better things. No, Acts 4.12 states it as clear as possible. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So choose to depend on Christ. Choose the new covenant signed and sealed in his blood. Depend on Christ's plan because of Christ's heart to take possession of the righteousness of God in your life. For that's why he created you, to be blameless before him, that you might know him and receive all the blessings and benefits of being his. That brings me to my final point, that we must embrace Christ's destiny. Jesus' promise and his provision comes with a command, does it not? This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and eat. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. These are commands. See, we choose to participate in this new covenant by choosing to depend on Jesus Christ and his salvation. That's what we do when we take communion, which we will be doing right after this sermon. We're assenting to this new covenant that we want this new covenant. We're receiving and accepting the new covenant. 
but there is one who did not. Verse 21, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. His name was Judas Iscariot, and he wanted no part of Jesus' sacrifice for him. Rather, he is called the betrayer. It's interesting that he was one of the disciples at the table. And very clearly, they had no clue that it was him. For they began to question one another when Jesus said this. They, they couldn't tell who he was. He looked so much like them and acted like them. Why did he not receive the new covenant? He saw no need. He didn't realize that he was desperately sinful. He couldn't see the grace and the free offer that comes in Jesus Christ. It's so sad that he was so close and yet so far away. And so Judas Iscariot serves as a warning to us to not be this person that you can come again and again and hear the gospel and yet somehow grow immune to it, immune to the fact that you and I are desperately sinful and desperately in need of a Savior. Jesus inaugurated a new covenant in his blood that night, and that new covenant continues on in perpetuity, full and in force today, and will continue on until the day that he comes. I remember when I heard this new covenant as an 18-year-old and said, this is what I want for my life, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. May each one of us hear and respond to the good news of Jesus Christ that's granted. That's what Easter is all about. The hope that we have that a God would love us this much, that would want to know us so deeply that he would draw near to us through his blood shed on the cross. You can be in a living relationship today with all the blessings and benefits that those disciples experienced. What wonder it is that that is true. Because Christ has inaugurated a new covenant with us in his blood, we need not fear the wrath of God. That is the promise for everyone within my hearing this Easter season. May you take advantage of it and know Jesus Christ, the one who loved you and gave his life for yours. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this picture uh, of this last supper that you would want to spend it with those who you love. God, you show us in the Last Supper how far you are willing to go to build and to have a relationship with each one of us, to free us from sin and Satan, to rescue us and to bring us in the kingdom. God, I pray that each one of us would um, take this new covenant and internalize it and bring it to heart, that we would take and eat, take and drink, that we too would be called sons 
and daughters of God through Jesus Christ. We thank you and we pray all of this in his name. Amen.